And Father, now as we uh, turn our attention to your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace of open hearts and open minds to receive what you have for us, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to step into maybe a new season of obedience or freedom or encouragement or joy or, or clarity, Lord, that we didn't have before because you are leading us by your spirit and you are directing us by your word. And so accomplish your will and your people right now. We ask you in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. You could be seated. We got a box of Bibles up here at the front. And you can find Acts chapter 3. We made it. It's only been eight weeks. We made it to Acts chapter 3. Anyway, uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. Looks like Stephen's handing them out. Stephen, just give it to him. Just be like, your lap is empty. Here you go. Don't throw it. Where's Brittany at? Yeah, come on up, Brittany. She's been excited about this since we planted the church. She was like, can you just get me on stage with a mic? <laughs> That's not true. She hates this. Uh, we've been focusing on prayer since uh, the, our fourth birthday a couple months back, and this is culminating as this week leads up to, uh, coming weeks will lead up to Easter. And uh, so kind of the final piece to that. Um, is we're going to spend a season of prayer and fasting as a church. And so um, fasting as um, kind of a practice, a, a methodology, a, a, a way to pray kind of stands by itself. It's something the Bible talks about uh, in conjunction with prayer, uh, kind of on its own. And so Brittany uh, looked into fasting, which was awesome because I gave her the assignment a couple months ago, and she's like, I've never fasted. And I was like, that means you're the perfect person to do some research because there's going to be other people who come to this church who are like, I never fasted either. So Brittany, tell us what you found out. Um, okay, first, my voice and hands are going to shake because I really hate being up here, so just ignore that. Um, but yeah, with he assigned this to me. I laughed because I had never fasted, and it was always cloaked in mystery and super intimidating. Um, so I freaked out and dove into sermons and all the scripture uh, and books. And so the first half of my resource page is kind of compiled of that, of what is biblical fasting? What makes it different from like fasting for health reasons or political reasons? Um, as Christians, what's our focus during fasting? Why do we do it? Um, and then along this line of like diving in and researching, at some point the Lord just kind of stopped me and said, look, Britt, you have like, you've got this knowledge, you've dove in, you understand it, you've researched, but now like come and experience me in this. Like I want you to come and actually fast. Um, so the second half of the resource page is built off of that and the things that like during my fast that the Lord led me to in scripture, promises and prayers um, that helped to strengthen me and encourage me um, and convict me while fasting. And so that's the second half, more like boots on the ground. Um, here's some places in scripture to go, um, whether you fasted before or you've never fasted, um, that can help you during it. So I'm excited. Um, honestly, to grow in this discipline with all of you guys. Um, if you've never done it, like he said, you are not alone because I am brand new at it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Good job. Yeah. So if you go to the website right on the front page, there's a button you can hit prayer resources. Um, and we are going to give you an opportunity to exercise this knowledge that you are given. Um, and we'll talk about that at the end. 
um, with a time of prayer and fasting. If you're like me, um, sometimes you go to church and they start talking about something and you're just immediately like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> just think about that for a second, right? Like God brought you to a church that is pressing into prayer and going to spend a time in prayer and fasting. And that's fine. If you ask the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, that's stupid. Don't do that. Fine. <laughs> But God may just be like, no, 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 I have you at this church. I put it on the leadership team's heart to focus on prayer and fasting. Maybe this is something I want to teach you. I don't know. Just a thought. Here we go. Acts chapter 3. I was told by our sound guy who runs our youth group to mention it, and I don't want him to cut my mic. So if you got a junior high or high schooler that's not doing anything on Tuesdays or just needs some fellowship and some Bible teaching and some friends that love Jesus too, uh, you can go on the website and find our small group page or talk to Austin. And his wife, Bella, was standing up here singing. She's involved with it too. So yeah, that's a good, good thing going on here. Acts chapter 3 is where we are jumping in. We finally finished chapter 2. Um, continuing on through our study through the book of Acts, I will point out two things right off the beginning that's going to help us understand this passage, actually, before we even read it. Um, if you remember back when we went through the book of Genesis, we talked about from the very beginning that as God was doing things, he was doing things in a way, in a very specific way, that revealed something about himself. And so he wasn't just making light. He was making light in a way that represented something about himself. And then the absence of light, darkness would also teach us something about the spiritual world. And then he was making plants grow in a way that he would use as sermon illustrations later on that we've talked about in Mark chapter four, the parable of the sower. So he was doing all this stuff, not just to do it. And he's like, hey, cool, look what I did. But like doing things in a way that revealed something about himself. That never stopped. Okay, God continued on through the rest of history doing the things that he did in a way that revealed something about himself. He's very efficient. He doesn't waste time or details or energy just doing something. He does things the way that he does them for a reason. Okay, now if you continue on, the second thing I want to remind you of is that Jesus, God in the flesh, continues that pattern of doing things in a very specific way to teach you something about himself. And also, this is a work of Jesus, what we're going to read in Acts chapter 3. Remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke, who's the author of this, uh, he said, I began, I, I taught, I, sorry, I'm mixing up all my words in my head. I wrote to you earlier about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So that meant, as we talked about it, we went through the book, uh, Jesus isn't done doing, Jesus isn't done teaching. And we're going to read today that the followers of Jesus who witnessed this miracle are going to say, this was the work of Jesus. Jesus did this. And like I said, from what we learned from the book of Genesis, Jesus did it in a very specific way at a very specific time, using a very specific person, having very specific people in attendance, in a very specific location to accomplish his will. He didn't waste any of what he was trying to do. So what we're going to see is we're going to see kind of three chunks this morning. We're going to see a miracle, and then we're going to see a sermon, and then we're going to see a response, okay? So let's jump in. Kind of our first chunk is going to be the miracle. Uh, Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So here's the scenario. Peter and John are walking into the temple at the time of the Jewish afternoon prayers. Uh, Now, I think it's probably helpful to get an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about the temple, because... uh, when you're talking about going into the temple and the numbers of people that we're going to be talking about later on, if you have a misunderstood like kind of version of the temple, you're going to be like, wait, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. So uh, if I were to go through all of the details and like the parts of the temple and how it was built and where it was located and who was allowed to go where and what we were allowed to do in each part of the temple, we'd be here for a long time. And we don't have Well, we do have time, but we wouldn't even get to Acts chapter 3. So uh, I would encourage you to look into the temple. If you ever have like something you want to study, the temple is fascinating. The way God built it, the way he did it, uh, the way he gave the instructions to communicate, again, something about himself and heaven. So it's awesome. But the big idea is this. There's a building in the middle. Okay, if you start in the middle, there's a building. And it's not a huge building, uh, but that's the actual temple. Okay, And then uh, almost nobody is ever allowed to go in the actual temple. One guy, once a year. It's a long story, but like I said, we're not going to do all of it. Then there's a courtyard outside of that building, and then there's some walls. And then on one side of the wall, there's another courtyard with walls around it. And then outside of that, there's another courtyard and more walls. And then outside of that, there's a giant courtyard. Like we're talking multiple football fields, huge with more walls. And all of that would be called the temple. I think, yeah, like this. Uh, This is a model that's actually in Jerusalem. I've been there a couple times. It's really cool to see. There's another picture that we have that kind of gives you an idea of scale because you can see how small the people are, right? So like there's like multiple walls, multiple courtyards, and all of this is considered the temple, okay? So when they said they're going to the temple, they're not going to the little building in the middle. They're going to this kind of giant complex, and this guy is sitting at the gate, um, of the, the, the outermost gate as you walk into the very first courtyard. And what you need to know about the kind of temple structure is the most people were allowed and therefore the most activity took place in the furthest out, biggest courtyard. Okay, that's where all the stuff happened because everybody was allowed in there. Well, almost everybody was allowed in there. You were allowed to do the most stuff in there. So when they were teaching and the sermon that we're going to give later, all that took place in this outer courtyard. And we're going to need to know that because there's going to be thousands upon thousands of people involved in this. And it would not have been like crammed in. It would have been plenty of space. Just kind of so you have that in your mind. So this guy is sitting by the gate. 
on the way to the first courtyard. Uh, lots of people are going to be go, going by him every single day on their way into temple worship, on their way into the prayers at the temple. We have a 3 p.m. prayer meeting, uh, prayer time that they're going in for. Uh, there was a couple other ones during the day. So there was multiple times per day devout religious Jews would be in and out of the temple. So multiple times per day, they would be walking by this man. And he was asking for alms. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why wasn't he asking for money? Well, money, alms is a type of money. It's a type of giving. So if you go back into your Old Testament, um, you will see that tithing, tithe literally means 10%. So tithing was uh, directed for the people of God to keep the temple going. And so you would give your tithe to the temple and that paid for the workers and the structure and, and kind of all that stuff. That was called your tithe. And then above and beyond your tithe, you were called to give alms. Alms was uh, more than 10%, uh, so extra money that you would give to meet needs. So like poor people, you know, people, your neighbor was in need, you know, someone on the street didn't have any food, that kind of stuff. Uh, it wasn't coming out of the 10%, it was above and beyond the 10%. And it, it had a special name. It was this giving that wasn't the tithe, but it was supposed to be generosity towards people to meet needs. And it was called alms. So that's what he's asking for here. If you're like, what the heck is he asking for? Like, why didn't he ask for money? Well, it is money. It's just a special type of gift. And the reason that's important is because he's, he's like, this guy's smart, right? He's sitting right outside the temple. So like people are going in to pray and then he uses the word alms. Like, will you give the spiritually mandated expectation of God for you to be generous with your finances to me? Like right after you got out of prayer. You're like, no, right? So like, he probably does pretty well. Like as far as street corners go, like he's got a good gig. He's smart. And he's sitting there every day, every day. And if you think about it, he was so well known that people recognized him even later on when it says he was healed and he's walking around in the temple. People are like, that's the guy who used to sit out front. That kind of happens, right? If you go by a street corner every day, multiple times per day, and there's always the same guy sitting there, you get to know him. Everybody gets to know him. Everybody in town is like, oh, yeah, that guy who used to play the saxophone down by Dick's Burgers. Or, oh, yeah, that guy who used to, you know, all this stuff that we know of these people who sit in the same spot all the time. Like, we understand those types of things. And so this guy was very well known. Add to that the fact that we're going to find out in chapter 4 that he was over 40 years old. So he had literally been doing this for probably decades, 20, 30 years maybe. At the same corner, people walking by multiple times per day. Everybody would have known him. And if you think about that, do you think this was the first time that Peter and John had walked by this man? No, not even close. Right? Peter and John had walked by this man multiple times. Now, think about this. Remember, Jesus had only been crucified and resurrected like two months prior to this. So not only had Peter and John walked by this guy tons and tons and tons of times, but probably Jesus had walked by this guy a bunch of times. And maybe you're not like this. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I'm kind of petty. So if I was this guy, I'd been like, why didn't you heal me, Jesus? I hear about this teacher guy, Jesus, he's doing these signs and wonders. There he goes. Nope, nothing for me. There he goes. Nope, still nothing. Hey, nope, no healing for me. 
I hear that he makes blind people see, deaf hear, lame walk. And then we just read in Acts chapter 2, signs and wonders were following the apostles. Okay, so Jesus didn't heal me. Maybe his followers will heal me. Right? Peter, James, Peter, John, walking in and out of the temple. He, nope, he, signs and wonders. I hear you guys are doing all this crazy stuff. Where's my miracle? Where's, where's it coming? Why is it mine? Right? I hear these people and God's doing this incredible stuff for them and all these circumstances. Where, how come it hasn't happened for me yet? And we do this thing. Maybe you don't, because like I said, you're more spiritual than I am. But you start to think about yourself. Why hasn't God done what I'm asking him to do? And the answer is that this was 100% an issue of timing. Okay, because we get in this, this mode where we think like, oh, it hasn't happened for me yet. Well, is it because I'm not doing this right? Is it not, I'm not doing that. And there are some instances where the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. It's like, yeah, it's because you suck and you need to get better, right? And God's not going to bless you with something that's going to lead you away from him. But there's lots and lots and lots and lots of times where it's just not God's timing yet. And this instance was not like he was, he didn't mess something up. He wasn't lame because like he or his parents did something crazy. God wasn't punishing him. Like this was just an issue of God's timing. God was just like, not yet. I have something bigger and better that I'm calling you to. I have more people that I want to touch with your life. I have more of a big deal I want to make of your healing. I have more miracle than you're even ready for or expecting coming your way. And it's just not your time yet. And this guy probably was thinking, where's my miracle? Well, how come it hasn't happened for me? I've heard you can do this. Why haven't you done this, God? And it wasn't anything that he could do. He couldn't speed it up. It wasn't that God was like upset at him. Like the non-healing was not a reflection of God being mad at him. None of that. It was just 100%. God had a plan to heal this man on this day in this method with these people present because this was best for all the people involved. Now, remember what I said earlier about Genesis, how God did things in a way that revealed something about himself? Don't forget that. Because Jesus is going to heal this man in this place which is really really significant. Think about this for a second. Why is this man sitting where he's sitting? One, it's because there's a lot of people going in and out. But maybe more significantly than that, this man is not allowed into the temple to worship like all the other people like him would be. He's handicapped. He can't walk. Okay? Now, if you're, if you're going, what is going on here? Yeah, you weren't allowed to go into the temple if you were handicapped. Now, this was not a prejudice issue, because if, if you don't study it a little bit, you might be like, that's exclusive. It's not the reason. God actually intended for the temple and the surrounding area to be a picture of heaven. Okay, so what he says is, that no unclean thing or no unclean person can come into the temple and worship in the way that normal people is because in heaven, there will be no infirmities. There will be no handicaps in heaven. This is a picture of what's going to be a representation on earth of what our future hope is and your handicap is not going to make it with you into heaven. That was the hope that God intended by setting things up the way he did. It wasn't meant to be exclusive. Like if you're a handicapped person, you're probably thinking, is this, is, am I going to be like this forever? 
Like when we get to heaven, like, do I still have, do I still not to get to do, am I still behind everybody? And God's absolute 100% firm answer was, no, no, no. There will be no more weeping in heaven. There will be no more handicaps in heaven. Everything will be restored. Everything will be made new. The corruption of your current body will not make it into heaven, into the presence of God. So it wasn't a prejudice or an exclusive thing. It was intended to give hope to this person. It was intended to communicate one day the hope that God is calling you to Everybody will be made clean. Everybody will be made new. Every tear will be wiped away. Every broken corruption will be made right. And so because of that, this guy was not allowed to go into the temple. Now, even though that's clearly communicated in your Old Testament, that God was trying to give hope by setting up these rules, humans, like they're prone to do, misunderstood and misrepresent God. Right? Amen? Nobody? Yeah, it happens all the time. And so what happened was the culture said, oh, you're handicapped. It's probably because God's mad at you. You, got, you probably did something really bad. Your parents probably screwed up. Really, you guys are probably the worst sinners that have ever lived. Like, this is why God is punishing you by making you handicapped. That's what he had been told by the culture his entire life. God doesn't want anything to do with you. God's upset with you. Your sin has separated you from God. You are on the outside looking in. You are not okay with God. God doesn't want a relationship with you. This is all punishment for wrong things. So what God had intended to communicate hope to this man, the culture had turned around as a judgment and condemnation of this man. So picture this guy sitting just outside the temple because he's been told his whole life God is upset with him and the reason he is handicapped because he or his parents did something really wrong and God doesn't want him to come worship in the temple. Now, how cool is it then that the Holy Spirit would see fit to make the very first recorded healing in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit comes, after the church is born, the first recorded miracle after the church is born, this picture of a man who had been told his entire life, God doesn't want anything to do with you. And God heals him. And in a minute, he's brought in. You see that picture? Like that's an incredible picture for the first miracle of the church, the first healing in the book of Acts. It's like, hey, everybody's told you forever, you're on the outside. And Peter and John are like, I don't, Jesus Christ of Nazareth wants you on the inside. Rise up and walk. Come worship God. In the blink of an eye, as Jesus, as, as Peter tells this guy, in the name of Jesus, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And yes, it's cool that this man can walk. And yes, it's very cool that he now has strength in his ankle and his feet. But it's cool on a whole nother level that this man can now freely walk into the temple and worship God for the first time in his life. And it's almost like Peter just said to this man, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come fellowship with God. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, no longer be separated from your maker. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come know what it means to partake in worship of God with the people of God. Isn't that cool? Somebody say amen. That's worth it, right? That's an incredible picture for this first miracle in the book of Acts. And to this guy's credit, what's the first thing he does when he's healed? Look at verse 8. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. He gets healed. 
And of the one million things he could probably do with his time, now that he could walk for the very first time, he goes into the temple to praise God for it. I don't know. There's probably a few other things on his bucket list. Like, hey, if I could, if I could walk one day, what would I do? And he immediately goes in with a thankful and rejoicing heart to praise God. We've spent a lot of time talking about prayer recently, and one of the things we usually do when we pray is we ask God for stuff. But I don't know if you've ever had any self-reflection on this, but what would you do if God gave you what you asked for? What would you do? Would your first reaction be to go in and praise God with the people of God? Would you be like, I can't wait to go on Sunday and tell everybody about what the Lord's done and sing at the top of my lungs because God's been good to me? Because here's the thing. In our culture, we ask God for a lot of stuff that sometimes leads us away from God. We pray for something, we get it, and the temptation is then to focus all of our energy on that thing that we prayed for. I, I get the thing! And now it's like, we got to go use it. I got to go do it. I got to be. And it's like, whoa. And it's very possible that God isn't giving you the thing you're praying for because he knows it would lead you away from him. That's possible. To this guy's credit, he gets what he's asking for and he immediately goes in thankful heart to God. And this really isn't in the text we're reading, but it's such a prominent issue in the world that we live in. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we're asking for because he knows we would not be drawn to him because of it. We would be drawn away from him. And there might be somebody listening to this right now, in person or online or something like that, and God gave you something that you'd been asking for, and the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart right now about what happened next. As I read this text, I was reflecting on like, oh yeah, I prayed for that, and then I got it, and I was like, oh. Right? That might be happening to some of you right now. This man is the exception to the rule. Right? Most people have the temptation to go somewhere else when they get what they want. This man goes back to the Lord in thankfulness and praising God. And what happens is, while this man is in the temple, people begin to recognize him, and it starts to draw a crowd, and they're all going like, people are literally running, it says, from all different directions. It's the man from the beautiful gate. He's healed. He's walking. No, he's not. Yeah, come look. And they're running. What the heck is going on? There's this huge people gathered together, and look at what Peter does, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, and by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did our rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like one like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter sees this crowd And immediately he is convicted, like he was in Acts chapter 2, to preach to this crowd. He's like, I'm going to preach a sermon. Let's go. And it's awesome. And he begins to preach a sermon. And it's a very interesting message that he preaches. He starts and he says, I don't know why this is surprising to you guys. (laughs) What's the big deal? Like, God can make anybody healed. And then he goes this place. It's great. This Jesus who made this man walk is the same Jesus who you all denied, the same Jesus who you all chose a murderer over, the same Jesus whom you all cheered when he was crucified. So basically, you killed Jesus. Not not the exact, like, evangelistic message we usually hear, right? Like, if we're trying to, like, draw people to Jesus, it's not usually like, you killed him! Right? That's, we, we do the like, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. Right? We're like, I remember one time I got saved. I didn't even know it. I'd been a Christian for a long time, and I went to this church service, and we got to the end of it. And the pastor was like, if you're just tired of the weight that you've been carrying, I just want you to raise your hand right now. And I was like, yeah, man, my life's really hard right now, which it was when I was 16. I had no idea what hard was. But anyway, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's me. And then he's like, I'm going to pray for you. And he prayed. And then he goes, those people just got saved this morning. Let's give them a hand. And the whole church starts clapping. I was like, wait, who did? Oh, me? I was like, I've been a Christian for a long time. I got tricked into getting saved. It was incredible. <laughs> that's not what Peter is doing here, right? Peter's evangelistic message is, you killed Jesus. You killed him. You killed the author of life. Wow, that's harsh. That's harsh, right? Why does Peter start by talking that way? Why does Peter see fit to start his message there? He he chooses not to go with the warm, fuzzy approach. This is the short answer. This group of people, they think they're okay with God. Right? They think they're on the inside. They're like, no, we're good. Us and God, we're tight. We're his people. We're sons of Abraham. We're fine. We and God are good. He's good. I'm good. We're good. It's all good. And Peter's like, it's not all good. You killed the author of life. And what he's trying to awaken them to is that they are actually not only not good with God, they are actively working against God. He's he's not, hey, there's a God-shaped hole. No! He's like, stop working against God. Stop actively opposing the direction and work of God on the earth. 
That's what he's trying to get them to understand. It's definitely not okay. It's definitely not all, you're not on the inside. You're on the outside, but you think you're on the inside. And you need to be shaken awake. And then he goes into this thing. He says, you traded Barabbas for Jesus. Not only are you working against God, you're making stupid trades. Like you traded, Barabbas was a murderer. Right? A murder. And at the time of the feast, there was custom for Pilate, who was the governor, to let one person go. And there was like, Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus is the king of the Jews. Barabbas is a known murderer. And they were like, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And Pilate's like, really? That seems like a stupid trade. And Peter's like, hey, that was a stupid trade. And here's why I think it's such an important message for us to hear right now. The biggest thing separating these people from God was their assumption that they were already good with God. They just assumed, yeah, me and God are good. We're fine. And Peter is like, not only are you not good with God, you are advocating for plans that are opposed to God and working not with God, but you're working against God. And you're trading sweet times of refreshing that he was talking about for soul-sucking wickedness. You're making awful trades with your life. Now, all of these people did not have a direct hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. Just like you and I, when we read this message, we did not actively nail the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. But all of these people, and also you and I, need to be awakened to the fact that much of our lives is spent working against the plan of God and not with the plan of God. And Peter's message is stop working against God and stop making stupid trades in your life. Jesus said it this way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's a stupid trade. Just in case you're wondering, like you're doing the math in your head. No, it's bad, right? It's a stupid trade to trade your soul for anything on planet earth, right? Stop trading religious box-checking activity for a real relationship with God. That's a stupid trade. Stop trading the pursuit of wealth and success for time spent in fellowship with God's people. That's a stupid trade. Stop trading sleeping in on a Sunday morning for being a part of the body of Christ. That's a stupid trade. Stop trading the development of your God-given gifts for the pursuit of temporary comfort. That's a stupid trade. You will never get times of refreshing by neglecting the things of God in pursuit of comfort. Peter says all of humanity needs to understand we naturally are opposed to the things of God. And all of humanity needs to understand that we make stupid trades and all of humanity needs to recognize and turn around, which is what repentance means. You're going this way, go the other way. Turn around. In order that verse 20 Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a great sentence right there? Anybody else read that and you're just like, oh man, that sounds like what I need. Like times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Who in this story is experiencing times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? Think about it. Think about all the people so far. It's the guy who just got healed, right? That guy is on fire. 
This man who is just healed and is walking for the very first time in the temple courts, in the place where God is worshiped, accepted and included by his creator for the very first time in his life. Man, that guy is a poster child for times of refreshing. It says he's walking and running and leaping and praising God. So here's the picture. We have this handicapped man who believes he is separated from God for his entire life. And then by a miracle of Jesus, he is brought in and included as part of the body of Christ. And on the other side, we have this crowd of people who assume that they are good with God. But Peter is bringing awareness to the fact that they are actually separated from God and opposed to God because they refuse to repent and turn around. So these guys think they're good, but Peter says, you're definitely not good. You think you're on the inside, you're on the outside. And then he gets to do this incredible thing. But there's good news for people who are on the outside. Because look at this man. And look at what God just did in his life. Isn't that a great picture? Like Peter's up there preaching the sermon, and he's like, hey, you guys think you're good? You're not good. You're actually separated from God. I know you've been telling this man for his entire life that he's the one that's separated from God, but you guys are actually separated from God. You're working against God. You're making stupid trades with your life. You're not in a good spot. You killed the author of life. But good news, there is hope for people who are on the outside looking in. Example A Come on forward. And this man is now standing in front of them, singing and praising and worshiping God. Isn't that an incredible picture? Like, that is powerful. Like, hey, the road to times of refreshing may be difficult in that you'll have to admit that I'm not as cool with God as I think I am, that maybe I need to reflect on the things that are going on in my life, that maybe I need to stop working against God, that maybe I need to stop making stupid trades, that maybe I have to actually repent and turn around. But there's good news for people who find themselves in that spot because God has a heart for people who are separated from him. And he's calling you into fellowship with him by the miracle of of his son. And so we have this great message. We have this incredible picture, this moving scene right there in the temple. This is a, if this was a Disney movie, right? They'd like hoist the guy on their shoulders and they'd be like singing and there'd be like inspirational music playing as like the scene fades out into like a sun spark and you know, like the credits roll. Like if this was Disney, this would be a great ending to a movie. It's not Disney. It's real life. And look at what happens next. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we have three different reactions to this message. First, we have great annoyance, which I don't know about you, but I don't know what is to be greatly annoyed about here. The stupid people, they're telling them that times are refreshing are coming from the Lord, and then they healed a guy, and then they were like all praising and being thankful. It's so annoying, right? Like, I don't know why that's annoying. Like what part of this is actually annoying? Right? There's this huge people, and all these people over here are happy and praising God for what he's done in their lives. Like, is that annoying? Shouldn't be. But it's not surprising either that it's annoying because there's a spiritual battle going on. 
And you always find that if the work of the Lord is taking place, you will find an overreaction from those who are opposed to it. They're not just like, ah, yeah, no big deal. They're like, ah, tear the Ten Commandments down. No Bible. Stop praying, coaches. And you're like, that's what you're mad about? Okay, whatever, right? It's a spiritual battle. It's real. The second reaction is harder to spot. But verse 4 says, many who heard believed. But that means that there were some who heard and didn't believe. And it doesn't say why they didn't believe, but they didn't. They heard the word. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe they weren't really listening. Maybe they just had like a bad experience with church people. And they're like, they're all hypocrites. So they're like, I'm not listening to anything they say. Maybe they were just indifferent. Like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Am I going to repent? Nope. What is clear in the passage is that the only reaction to the message and the miracle that meant anything was for those who believed. The only response that counts is those who believed. So on the outside, we have the religious people who are very opposed to the message and annoyed by it. And then we have the indifferent people who kind of didn't care. And then on the inside, we have those who believed and repented. Let me tell you and point that out real quick. To make no decision when you hear the gospel is a decision. To choose not to repent is a choice. Right? I think it's interesting that this first miracle is like healing of a beggar. Because what do we all do when we come up to beggars and we don't want to give them money? We don't look them in the eye, right? Because we think if I don't make eye contact with them, then somehow it's not me choosing not to give them money. It's like, oh, I didn't see you. Like, you saw them, right? And people do that at church all the time, right? They're like, hear the Bible and like, repent. So I'm just going to pretend I wasn't listening. They're not, yeah, that's listening, right? Choosing to do nothing is a choice. And that's what we have here. We have annoyed, we have indifferent. And then we have believers. And there's some of you sitting here this morning that are hearing this for the first time. And it's hitting you. And, and maybe it's stinging a little bit. Maybe there's a freshness that you've never felt before. That you have been opposing the work of God and maybe making really stupid trades in your life. And God is calling you to repent. Don't put that off this morning. Choosing to do nothing is a choice. Make that decision to allow God to change your heart right now. There's another group of people in here listening to this right now, and you follow Jesus for a long time maybe, and, and you know you have the propensity to work against God, and you know you have the propensity to make stupid trades, but you just got off track a little bit. And as you read this, maybe God gave you something that you were asking for, and you're convicted, like, I don't know if I was very thankful for that, or maybe I, you let it lead me away from God. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit's going, hey, come on back. Come on, you've, you've, you're missing the times of refreshing because you're on your own thing here. Get back, get back. And then there's others here who just need to be reminded of how incredible it is that God took our broken, wounded souls and by a miracle of his grace brought us in. We deserve to be on the outside. We deserve to be sitting just outside the temple courts being told you don't deserve to be in fellowship with God. And God, by his miracles, like, no, 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 come on in. Come on. That's why we sing. 
That's why we celebrate. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings, because God took all of us as corrupt and broken and spiritually handicapped as we were. It was like, by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come on in. Come on, come on in. Fellowship, worship, be grateful, be part, connect with your creator and maker, because he is a gracious and good God. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word and see this incredible picture of healing and grace and your miraculous power. And I pray that there are people, I know there are people in this room even, or listening online that are like, things in my life got to change. I got to repent. Maybe it's they got to take that first step into faith with you. Maybe it's they, they have faith in you, but they've been wandering. they got to come back. Maybe it's they just need to be reminded of how good you are and start rejoicing and praising with their whole heart. I don't know where they're at, Lord, but you do. And I pray that this time right now would be useful in your hands, through your spirit, to accomplish your purposes. We're going to take about 45 seconds a minute right now, and you just, in your seat, quietly, You pray to the Lord. You ask him what he wants to do in your heart. You ask him if there's something that needs to be repented of. You ask him if times of refreshing are are held up because of something you're doing, or just maybe it's not his timing yet, and maybe you need to give him that. Go ahead and pray on your own right now. we are so grateful that you don't leave us like you found us, Lord. We are so grateful that you offer us the gift of repentance, the chance to turn around, the hope of times of refreshing, the calling out of our wickedness, the healing of our souls, the inclusion of us in the people of God, Lord, and we deserve none of it. You're such a good God, Lord. Thank you for your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.